The reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Good morning again. So I think that's the shortest reading I've ever been assigned to for a sermon. Uh, literally two verses, and um, Kathy asked me earlier this week, are, are you sure you're only preaching on these two verses? And um, I joked that at least we'll be able to get through it really quickly, and um, that's kind of how I was feeling as I was preparing. There's, there's, there seems like there's only two verses here, but as, I, as always, as I was sitting and, and prayerfully considering, hey God, what is it that you want me to say this morning? So much came up. Um, I could easily speak for much more than 20 minutes on these two verses, but um, I think God has a lot to say to us this morning. I think there's a real challenge here, but there's also a big encouragement. Um, So last time I was here, I, oh, sorry, let me just click up to the slides. Here we go. Towards the tomb. Last time I was here, um, I kind of gave an overview of where we're going, so I'll give you that again. Uh, Oh, I didn't. I haven't turned this on. That's, that's, my, that's my fault. Oh, here we go. First one. We're starting off with talking about how Jesus is the image of the invisible God. From there, we're going to talk about how even Jesus' anger is loving. And then finally, we'll talk about the idea that Jesus wants to restore his temple. So that's a summary of the three points that I want to make as we talk about these two verses. But I also want to ask the big question. I want this to be in your head. Are you ready and willing to give Jesus complete control, complete authority in your life? Are you ready to give Jesus complete control and authority in your life? So with that introduction, let's just pray as we get into it. Lord God, as we explore this short passage together, I ask that you'll be with us. I want to ask that you guide our thoughts. I pray that you ask, I want to ask that you empower me to speak your will. Open our hearts to hearing the things of you and protect us from anything that isn't from you. Open our eyes to see the calling that you have for us, to trust you, to openly give you permission to move in us. Amen. Cool. So I'll get rid of that background because it's pretty distracting and clashing with the words. But uh, we're starting off with the idea that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So just to give you a little bit of context before we get into anything, uh, we're in the book of Matthew and uh, Matthew's gospel has about 30 chapters and it kind of breaks up Jesus's life in three years, right? So you'd kind of be expecting there's like 10 chapters per year of Jesus's life, 30 chapters into three years. But in reality, instead of having 10 chapters, we're in verse chapter 21, instead of having a whole year here that Matthew's talking about, we're literally talking about one week. We've, we've been kind of going through the gospel of Matthew at 100 kilometers an hour, flying through, looking at a kind of key events here and there, and all of a sudden we've pumped the brakes and we're going like one kilometer an hour. This last 10 chapters is on one week of his life. And Matthew wants us to know that everything that happens here is really important. It's worth giving 10 chapters to. 
Larry kicked us off a couple of weeks ago with the triumphal entry into, his, into kind of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem and arrival into his, this last week. And it's full of this Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled and it's this beautiful revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. And, and the flow of the passage is that it goes from the triumphal entry straight into this. The very first thing that we see after Jesus has entered into Jerusalem is this passage. And personally, my first instinct is that it's kind of uncomfortable. I wonder how, for you, how many times when you picture Jesus in your mind, do you see him doing this? Jesus enters the temple courts and he drives out all who were buying and selling there. He overturns tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he, and he references the Old Testament. He says to them, my house will be called... a." Sorry, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. About 10 years ago now, um, this book was released by this um, couple of sociologists, one named Christian Smith and the other Melinda Lindquist Denton. And the book was called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And this book was put together to represent thousands of different interviews with these teenagers in America. They, they sought to understand what is it that teenagers in America believe about God. And the dominant overall response that they kind of came up with, with this, was with this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. I don't know if I'm clicking this very well. Ooh, sorry, guys. Cool. Moralistic therapeutic deism. This was the overall response that they got from thousands of teenagers. And these five points summarize what moralistic therapeutic deism is. Number one, that God exists, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three is that the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five is that good people go to heaven when they die. These are the five points that represent the views of thousands of American teenagers when they released this book. Thousands. And the problem is that it almost looks like Christianity, doesn't it? There's some truth in this. It looks like Christianity, but the focus is totally skewed. The researchers highlighted that this isn't just American teenagers either. When they released the book, that's the only people they'd like, interviewed and researched with. But as they continued to talk to other people and discuss around the world with what other people are seeing, they found out that this is much more than a youth problem or an American problem. And that they called it moralistic therapeutic deism because moralistic, we're called to be good moral people. That's kind of what it's all vaguely about. Therapeutic, because we be good in order to get things. We, we want therapeutic benefits. We, the whole point of life is to feel good about ourselves and to have high self-esteem. And it's deism because there's kind of a vague God who created everything, but apart from that, he's very vague and distant and only gets involved when you really need him. The picture of God that we see in a moralistic therapeutic deism is like a butler or like a genie. Every now and again, I, I need God to intervene in my life, so I kind of pray, and he comes in and makes everything better again. That, that's the God that thousands of young people interviewed believed in, and I wonder for you and me, do you relate to this? Because I want to be really honest and vulnerable with you here. 
that this sometimes looks like me. I know when I stop living intentionally, I start living this kind of life really quickly. Although I know that these things aren't true in my head, if I'm really honest and I look at how I practically live, this is sometimes how my life looks. When I start floating through life and not meditating every day, slowing down, remembering who God is, I start treating him like a butler really quickly. Or I get consumed with the next thing that I think will bring me happiness. And I want to ask you the question, can you relate to me? Do you sometimes see yourself thinking, we'll go back one, that the goal of your life is to feel good about yourself, that God only needs to be involved in your life when you need something from him? Do you see yourself treating God like a butler or a genie? And I actually love how uncomfortable our passage is because it stops me from feeling this way. Jesus overturns the temple courts. He drives out all who are buying and selling there. I, I, I don't think this click is working, is it? Sorry, my mistake. I'll just ask you. Thank you. Jesus overturns the temple courts. He drives out all who are buying and selling there. He quotes to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Sometimes it's really hard for me to imagine what kind of this invisible God is like, but I love Colossians 1.15 because it directs our focus to seeing Jesus as the image of the invisible God. And Jesus here is not a butler or a genie. But what we do see here is something really unique and it's something really special. And I think it's special in the Bible, but also outside of the Bible. We, we see one of the few accounts of this pure kind of righteous anger. John's account of this story actually has Jesus making a whip and he drives people out of the temple. I wonder what your first instinct of thinking, why is Jesus angry here? Why do you think Jesus is angry here? I think due to my experiences, due to each one of our individual experiences, we have a lot of baggage when it comes to seeing and, and anticipating why someone is feeling a certain way. I see road rage. I, I, I see people get angry when they feel really offended. The vast majority of anger that I think we all see is unrighteous. So I wonder what it triggers in your mind when you see Jesus getting angry because I, I, we need to ask this because we need to think really, why is Jesus angry here? What is actually going on? Let's not bring our own preconceptions into the text, but find out what is Jesus actually angry about? Because on one level, it looks kind of similar, like he's physically throwing a table over, he has a whip. But the second verse here actually directs us to what's going on. Why is Jesus angry? And it brings me to the second point, even Jesus's anger is loving. I was thinking about calling this something slightly different, maybe something slightly more cheesy, like Jesus is like a surgeon. Every cut that he does is actually designed to heal us. Because it's true. Every cut that Jesus does, when it looks like it's painful, he's got a greater idea of restoration going on. Jesus is driving these people out of the temple courts. He's making a scene. He's causing some discomfort because they need to know that they have desecrated, they've corrupted, they've done something that they shouldn't be doing, they've misused the temple. I purposely kind of like left those little links there, you can see that little E and the little F, because on places like Bible Gateway online, you can click on the little E and it takes you to what is that E actually referencing. 
And it's referencing Isaiah 56 and then Jeremiah 7. Beautiful. And both of these chapters are really powerful when we see them in context. And I wish we had like another full sermon to actually look at each of those things individually. But let's just have a quick look at what's actually going on here. Isaiah 56 is, is, is God setting up for his people what he wants them to look like. I know it's small there, but I'll read it to you. And it's only kind of a few verses, but he starts off by saying, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord shall surely exclude me from his people. God wants his people to know that if someone is bound to him, if they're committed to worshiping him, he doesn't want his people to exclude them, no matter what. It doesn't matter what background, where they're from, if they're bound to commit to follow and worship him, he wants them to be welcome. Don't let strangers feel unwelcome in your communities. And he continues, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus wants foreigners, people that aren't naturally here, that people that come from other places to feel welcome. He's designed this place to look like something. Let anyone who wants to come to me and worship me, they are welcome. So that's the picture that God's set up for what he wants his people to look like. And then obviously, I'm guessing you guys all know, Jeremiah is the opposite. It's this example of how we skew this, how we've kind of left that beautiful standard and gone astray. Here it is. And it starts off, reform your ways and actions and I will let you live in this place. It's a call to reforming. It's a call to repentance, to coming back to how it was. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, if you do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? And then come to me and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, as Jesus quotes, become a den of robbers? I have been watching, declares the Lord. Jesus echoes this passage because he knows the human heart. He knows that we are so quick to go askew, to know what Jesus calls us to do, but slowly wander off into our kind of own way. And this is exactly what was happening in Jesus' day. Jesus comes to the temple and he sees that the people have lost their way. They've they've gotten distracted with other things. They're, They're not doing what God called them to do. And Jesus calls them back to the original purpose. And we see it immediately afterwards in the next verses, just after he's quoted these Old Testament verses. It's this beautiful next little bit. Immediately afterwards, the blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, the the priests were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. 
Now, again, I wish we had more time to flesh all this out and go through all the different things going on here, but I really want to focus us in on the one idea that even Jesus' anger is loving. That right here, when he looks like he's causing pain, when it looks like he's causing discomfort, when things are up in the air, it's because he wants to restore. The bigger ultimate plan is that he has healing for them. Jesus' anger is purposed towards restoration, towards health and goodness. Alana's 22 weeks pregnant at the moment, and it's, it's getting pretty real that we've got a baby on the way. It's, it's exciting, um, but it's also kind of terrifying. I'm, I'm sure a lot of the parents can relate to that. One of the big things I'm not that excited about, I'm a bit scared about, is having to discipline my kids. Because it's, it's a hugely important thing to do. I'm sure we all know. I can't have my kids running out onto the road. I don't want my kids to lie to each other. I want my kids to be thoughtful and considerate towards other people. But discipline, the thing that is going to get them there a lot of the time, is hard. It's painful. But every time I discipline, I know I need to be like Jesus here. Purposeful towards their restoration. And on that, I want to kind of transition towards um, this final idea. Yeah, Jesus wants to restore his temple. So just as a kind of overall reminder, this is where we've been. I hope you've considered this idea of moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's rife in our culture. It's all through what young people, what old people believe. I see it in my own heart, and I hope that you're considering how you might start living these ways. I hope that you've, this passage has helped you see that God is not a butler. He's not just waiting around at your beck and call, but he's active. I hope that this passage will be, help you to be slow to see him that way. And number two, I hope that it's practically helped you understand Romans chapter, chapter 8, verse 28. Sorry. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called, who have been called according to his purpose. Even when life hurts, when, when, when Jesus seems to be angry in the temple, when life isn't going well, when things are upside down, God works all things for good for those who love him. And I just want to share quickly for me how these kind of things all come together. In this passage, Jesus is calling the people to repentance. He's calling them back into the old way of doing things, back into God's way of doing things. I can't tell you how many times I fall into the trap of thinking that repentance is like a one-time event. I, I so often think of repentance as this like prayer, hey God, I'm sorry that I did that and then done, repentance, finished, get back on with my life. But I think the really helpful illustration is that I'm walking this way and repentance is stopping, turning, and actually walking the other way. Repentance is more than just stopping, it's, it's turning, working out what went, what went wrong, putting in new boundaries, working out how I can run faster the other way. And Hebrews 12, I think we all know this passage really well, talks about it as a race. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because it's true that sometimes we go the wrong way in this race and repentance is the fact that we can turn around. We know that we have grace. But I want to ask the question, I know for me, how often am I like an Olympic athlete 
training to run hard in this race or how often am I just kind of, okay, I need to turn around and I'll turn around and kind of dawdle again. Repentance isn't just a moment. It's a lifestyle of living intentionally, purposely running a new way. I think anything else is kind of cheap or fake. I was listening to this podcast the other day and and this verse stood out to me. Um, This one from Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. I think for me, this moralistic therapeutic deism is is an example of hollow and deceptive philosophy, something that depends on human tradition and the spiritual elemental forces of this world. We know that we're not in a battle against flesh and blood, but against real demonic powers in this world. Powers that are powerful in this culture, trying to pull you astray. I want to ask the question, how are you seeing to it that no one takes you captive? How are you seeing to it that you don't get caught up in sin that entangles or hollow and deceptive philosophies? Are you throwing off everything that hinders you from running? How do you keep your eyes on Christ? That's what it says at the end, fix your eyes on Christ. And the other one says, depend on Christ. How often do we depend on other things? Do we fix our eyes on other things? And I want to share it's amazing news for you and I that Jesus wants to restore his temple. I don't know if you read the front of the news about, but Larry kind of preached my sermon already. Um, He said down the bottom that you are a temple of God. He quoted the exact same thing I'm going to quote, 1 Corinthians 3. You are a temple of God. In my life, the combination of these two things in light of the passage we've been talking about is that Jesus wants to come into your life and clear out the muck. The, the dead, empty ideas, the, the ways that lead to death. He wants to restore you and point you towards life. So here's the question I asked at the start again. Are you ready to give Jesus complete control over your life? Do you know that he's a good surgeon? Do you know that there's stuff in your life that you don't want to see there anymore? Because the Bible teaches that our lives get full of things that weigh us down. My life gets so full of things that weigh me down, that stop us from experiencing freedom in Christ. Because our lives were designed to be full of God, but we've, we've filled them with other things. We begin to misuse the temple to forget what God's original purpose was for us. And here's a warning before we jump anywhere too fast. Change is hard and, and restoration normally comes with pain. Sometimes it requires flipping a table over, causing some discomfort. But like we said, Jesus is like a surgeon. He cuts to bring restoration. The cutting is painful sometimes. So if you're ready to commit to Jesus' way, to say, God, I've had enough of this muck in my life, I want to give us really two practical things. And again, Larry's already given them to you, but I'll give them to you again. Number one is pray. There's been a few times in my life where I've stopped and really sincerely and really simply said to God, I'm tired of this kind of way of living my life. I'm tired of being just comfortable. 
I, I want a deeper level of intimacy with you, God. I want to live your way. And no matter how hard it is to get there, take me on that journey, God. I think these are the kind of prayers that God rejoices when we make because if we commit to him and say, I'm actually ready for this, take me, no matter how resistant I am, I think stuff changes. And if you want to pray that prayer today, I really want to encourage you to tell someone that you've prayed it. Pray it with someone else. If you want to pray it with me, I would love to sit and pray with you. Practically for me, this week has kind of looked like, I was talking to Josh the other day, for me, I need to have speed bumps in my life. So I've been talking to Josh about how kind of three times a day, I, morning, afternoon, and night, I, I want to stop for five, 10, 15 minutes and just say, hey, God, even though I've wandered here and there all about today, I want to realign to you today, God, to focus on you, to fix my eyes on you, and talking to someone about it. And that's obviously the second thing is that we're better together. This is our whole theme of this year. James 5.16, it's here. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that we may be healed. Pray and do it in community. And be really honest and vulnerable with someone. Be as specific as you can about where you're not giving him control and where you want to see him change something. And maybe you don't even know where you need this cleaning. Maybe you feel it. Maybe you're feeling like there's no freedom in Christ in your life and you're, you're tired of it. Maybe you need someone else to kind of see the, this, the food stuck in your teeth. And maybe step one in all of this is simply knowing for yourself what it is that God wants to change. If you sit and pray right now, if you commit some time to actually reflecting on this, I think he wants to explore that with you. So let me end by just saying one simple thing and then we'll pray. I sincerely believe that the best thing that we can do is to 100% commit our lives to Jesus. Amen? To give him control, to invite him into our lives to move radically. To trust that in beautiful Romans 8.28 promise. That if he comes in and, and causes some pain, it's for our good. I want to encourage you to pray that simple, honest prayer, to, to talk to someone about it. Let me just pray for us as we wrap up. Almighty God, I want to thank you that through Jesus we have this amazing knowledge of who you are, of what you're like, that you love us enough to pursue us, that you come into this world and bring restoration with you. Help us to see clearly how good you truly are. Help us to trust you. Help us to fix our eyes on you, to run towards you. Help us to, help us to flee from anything that hinders and entangles, to shed it from hollow and deceptive philosophies of this world. May we simply fall more and more in love with you.